I think you should be vigorous. You should have what Yeats called a pilgrim soul, always searching for meaning, always looking for new things you can do, new experiences. But I do think that that frame of satisfaction is an important one to try and build around yourself rather than a frame of frustration which some people find themselves trapped within. I'm Dr. Mark Rowe and welcome to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. As a family physician, my expertise is supporting people in the areas of positive health and lifestyle medicine. Join me in conversations that share life lessons, health habits and leadership practices, focusing on positive psychology, lifestyle medicine and ways that enable you to live with more vitality on purpose. Appreciating that when it comes to your vitality, that everything is so interconnected. Episodes will air weekly, and you can find me wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, on my website, drmarkrow.com. I'm delighted to be joined today in the doctor's chair by Daniel Mulhall, Irish ambassador to the United States of America. He talks to me about reflections on a 43-year diplomatic career in service. He joined the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs back in 1978 with early diplomatic assignments in New Delhi, Vienna, Brussels and Edinburgh, where he was Ireland's first Consul General from 1998 to 2001. He served as Ireland's Ambassador to Malaysia from 2001 to 2005, where he was also accredited to Laos, Thailand and Vietnam. In 2005, he was conferred with an honorary fellowship by the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland for his work in connection with the Asian tsunami. From 2009 to 2013, he was Ireland's ambassador to Germany. And before departing for Washington in 2017, Ambassador Mulhall served as Ireland's ambassador in London. As a passionate historian, author and prolific social media communicator, Ambassador Mulhall talks to me about reflections on a 43-year diplomatic career in service and the importance of lifelong learning. If you're a leader who recognises, particularly since COVID-19, that living with vitality and building a more resilient mind matter now more than ever for you and your team, then this podcast is for you. For further details, visit drmarkrow.com. I'm delighted to be joined in the doctor's chair today by Ambassador Dan Mulhall. I'm going to get straight into it, Dan, and bring you back to Christmas 2004 when the tsunami hit Southeast Asia. Nearly 230,000 people died, making it one of the deadliest disasters in human history. And you spent several weeks in Thailand at that time being of tremendous service. And can you talk to me and our listeners about that experience? It was a bracing experience. It was something that I never expected to have to um, do. It was something that there's no training for. There's no manual that tells you what you have to do when a tsunami strikes. I heard about it uh, on uh, Stevens' day. Mm. I was just about to sit down to lunch with uh, my children who were out from uh, from Ireland and uh, my wife's family who were over from Australia, up from Australia. And I got a call and I spent the rest of the day trying to uh, figure out 
what was going on and trying to phone people in various parts of Southeast Asia to find out what they could tell me about the tsunami because there was a lot of um, there was a big deficit of information. There was a lot of you know there was a lot of un- un- uncertainty about where the actual tsunami had struck most uh, seriously. But eventually, it became clear that the the epicenter, from an Irish point of view, was Phuket. So I went to Phuket the following day mm. and spent three weeks there. Um, first of all, trying to find injured Irish people and get them home, uh, providing people with passports who had lost their passports in the uh, tsunami. And then finally, sadly, uh, trying to locate the remains of those Irish who had uh, perished uh, sadly mm. during the tsunami. So it was a very, um, it was an experience that I'll never forget. Uh, but it does have one quality to it that's different from the normal run of diplomatic life. Diplomatic life is uh, you're dealing with things like that can take forever and a day to um, come to fruition. Mm-hmm. One of the things about a thing like this is that you can actually help people in the here and now. You can actually mm-hmm. intervene and assist an Irish person in trouble. And when you get them on that plane home or when you sadly find their remains and get the remains repatriated back to Ireland, you have reached the end of your responsibilities. And that is something that rarely happens in in diplomacy, where, for example, you know, colleagues of mine and I would have worked on Northern Ireland for 30 years before the Good Friday Agreement came about. Mm. So, you know, a lot of diplomacy is like that. If you're working on, for example, disarmament and arms control, um, you know, you might you might get an agreement or some movement or some progress every number of years, but in between you have to keep plugging away interminably. And one of the satisfying things about the um, my experience with the tsunami was that I was able to provide genuine assistance to Irish people who were in distress. And that's something that is a privilege to be able to do. And it's only a diplomat who can do it in these situations because you have the authority of your ambassadorial status and of the Irish government behind you when you um, go into a situation like that. I mean, is that the essence of the sort of in-service mindset making a difference? You know, I always think that I'm a civil servant for first and foremost. And that means that I'm, I'm, you know, my duty is to serve the people of Ireland through their government because I directly for the government, but it's always the people of Ireland that are, that are, that are behind the, you know, the situation and that are, that are ultimately the ones that have to be served. So most of the time, uh, you know, if you go to an international conference, for example, it feels kind of, you know, remote from the service end of things because you're doing something that's very important. For example, I spent two years in Vienna at the last uh, East-West conference of the Cold War. And that conference was a very important event because it helped to bring about the end of the Cold War. And it uh, it also helped, I suppose, to keep the peace in Europe, which was of vital importance to everyone in Europe. But but no Irish citizen felt directly affected by that. Whereas if you have a, a concert or crisis, uh, you know, uh, an accident or, or an emergency, a hurricane or, or a tornado or a tsunami or whatever, where Irish people are involved, then people need direct support from our diplomats. And that's where the service becomes direct to the citizens of Ireland, rather than indirectly by providing an environment in which their country and uh, the world can move forward and prosper and, and develop in a positive way. So, so, so it's a different kind of work that you do when you're dealing with the needs of people uh, who are in difficulty and who turn to the embassy and our diplomats for support because they have nowhere else to turn to. Yes. Yeah, I can only imagine, you know, a lot of the great work you and other diplomats do on behalf of Ireland, you know, it's unseen, it's unheard, and in some ways it's unmeasurable maybe for many years until there is sort of a a measurable outcome. Yeah, I mean, another example of that was I was... um 
some years ago, I was there was a conflict, there was a, um, a crisis in Lebanon, some some um, which looked very bad at the time, and and, and I was sent out to uh, to Damascus, in fact, to um, mm. repatriate the Irish from uh, who had been caught up in the conflict in Lebanon, and that was again an example where. You know, I was able to get these people out of Lebanon, get them onto a plane in um, Damascus, fly them to to Dubai, where they could catch an Aer Lingus flight from uh, Dubai to Dublin. And again, there there was a degree of satisfaction involved that that people were in difficulties. They they looked for help. The government was able to send me out and with a team of people that supported me, and we were able to arrange for those Irish people to make their way out of the you know, the dangerous situation that existed at that time in Lebanon. Mm this is many years ago, and get them back to Ireland. And so there is a certain kind of satisfaction that I certainly uh, derive from directly supporting people as opposed to, you know, providing a more, an environment conducive to the prosperity and the progress of Ireland and our people. That's the job, our foreign policy of our foreign service in broad systemic terms. But when it comes Mm -hmm. down to a crisis, then you're directly in contact with citizens. And that is something that gives me at least a sense of satisfaction. And I know that's the case for for my colleagues around the world Mm. as well. I'm reminded of that saying, you know, think global, but act local. Sort of the specifics of being able to make a tangible difference in the here and now. You know, I mean, people might think that diplomats are are working in a very refined environment. And that that may be true. You get to meet people that are operating very high level. I get to meet senior people within the Biden administration, the previous administration as well. When I was in London, I met all the senior people in the British government too. But ultimately, um, you know, our job is to look after Irish interests. And there's nothing more tangible than the interests of a citizen Yes. who's in difficult. And that, that's, that's not the glamour, you know, the glamorous end of the business is going to the, you know, the big events, being present, for example, as I was present for the inauguration of President Biden there in January. But, but the, the bedrock of our work, when the chips are down, the only, the first priority, the only priority we have is to look after the interests and the rights of our citizens. Well, I couldn't agree more. I mean, uh, you know, the, I was sent out to see Ibrahim Alawa about four years ago in Egypt and I met uh, your colleague, Ambassador Damien Cole at that time. And I was so yeah. taken by by his steadfast commitment and unshaking belief in, in, in what he was doing and what he was about. I mean, it was really, really quite remarkable how he made r- such regular visits to see that Irish citizen uh, a, a considerable effort to himself. I mean, it was really, I thought it was really great and it was totally unseen and unheard. Do you think the tsunami changed you, Dan, that experience? I mean, I suppose everything that, that you do in your life ought to change you a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, I always feel that, you know, we we move forward by what somebody once described to me as successive approximations. In other words, you don't just make a great leap towards some particular goal. Well, sometimes you do, but it's not very often you do that. So you have to kind of edge your way towards it. Yes. And I guess every day you're you're kind of doing a bit of edging uh, towards whatever, you know, I mean, I'm I'm very much of the view that um, life is a lifelong learning, uh, learning project, mm. you know, and that you have to keep adding to your store of knowledge, whatever area you happen to be involved in, uh, whatever interests you, whatever drives you, whatever appeals to you. Um, but so I, I therefore, I therefore think that everything I've done in the 43 years I've been in the uh, diplomatic service has kind of changed me. But obviously, you know, if I was to pick uh, a number of moments in my career, one of, one of the ones I would pick would be the tsunami because there were things happening there that were so awesomely destructive and sad 
that you have, would have to have a heart of stone not to be moved by the things that I saw and heard and experienced there in Thailand for those three uh, three weeks at the end of 2004 and the beginning of 2005. What other moments would you pick out if you're looking back in your career, 43 years? I would pick out getting on the plane in 1980 and heading off for India mm-hmm. as a 24-year-old, having no idea what was in front of me and thinking to myself, hey, what am I doing here? I'm on a plane. I'm going to a country. I know nobody there. Wow. I have little idea what it's going to be like. I It's going to be really strange and I won't see friends or family for at least a year until I get back on the home leave and I won't be able to call them. Mm-hmm. I can write, but I can't call them. So that was a daunting experience that I will never forget. Um, that was courage. Happily, yeah, I mean, look, yeah, look, I mean, it didn't seem like that at the time. It just seemed like that was just the job you had to do and you did it. And that's what that was that. And there was no ifs and buts about it. Nobody in the department in those days would, would kind of feel any kind of sympathy for you if you would start bellyaching about your, your lot in life. But now it's a lot more, you know, now you can you can bid for, you know, for postings and people generally end up going more or less where they are in some place which they broadly want to go to. But in those days, it, it was a case of, you know, you were sent and that was it. It was like being a priest. You were sent to the parish and you had no, you had no option but to uh, go to the place you were assigned, you know. But um, but that was, a, that, was a, that was a big deal, you know, leaving, I mean, I had... Until that time, I had been abroad a few times, but I basically lived in Ireland in, in, in uh, Waterford for, for 17 years, in Cork for four or five, and then in Dublin for two. And suddenly here I was going to India, mm. of all places. I, in, in you know the two years I was in foreign affairs, I remember thinking, well, I'd probably end up going to Paris or, 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 um, or Bonn or, mm. or, or the Hague or somewhere like that, somewhere close by, where you could be flying home and see family probably a few times a year. Little did I know. That I'd be heading off to um, the other side of the world, but I was a little fortunate that I met my wife Greta there. Um, you know, not long after I arrived, and uh, that that changed my life as well. And of course, by the time I came back to Ireland three years later, I had a wife and a baby, and uh, so. Um, but it was a but that that moment when I got on that plane, I'll never forget it. I got on. I actually, I actually went. I went to Paris on the way, because. The you know the World Cross Country Championships were on and John Tracy was oh, running yes. so I went out with people from Waterford so my cousin of mine and a few others out to see John Tracy running at the um, racetrack in, in Paris there so uh, so I so I actually left I didn't leave from Dublin I left from from Paris but I remember getting on the plane that that day in Paris and saying wow what am I doing here is this a good idea am I going to be able to cope with this new environment that I'm going to be living in as and from this evening but I did and I have no regrets you know fantastic. Uh, I would imagine as an ambassador that to a large extent, Dan, your expertise centers around building, you know, connection, consensus, excellent communication with other people. Uh, What advice might you give listeners about these skills and strategies? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, the the job of an ambassador is to to connect with people, analyze what he sees and experiences in the country he's accredited to, to communicate those those insights back to Dublin and to communicate the Irish view of the world to audiences in the receiving country. Uh, so in America, for example, a lot of what I do is in the public space. When I first started back in 1980, diplomats operated undercover. They operated behind closed doors. They operated in, in the corridors of foreign ministries. And for example, my first ambassador in New Delhi I don't remember him 
giving a public speech in the four years, or at least not very often. Whereas I, in normal times, when there's not a pandemic happening, I probably speak 10 times a week at different public events. So it's a totally different job from the one that existed when I first joined. So communication skills have become absolutely essential for diplomats in this particular age. Uh, and that's why I'm on Twitter every day at Dan McCall. I have a Facebook page. I, I communicate as much as I can. I do, um, I, I blog. I do, I do, I, I use every way, every means I can find to communicate our, the reality of Ireland to audiences around the United States, because that is now one of the fundamental jobs that diplomats have to do. And my advice about communications is, first of all, know what you want to say. Mm -hmm. Say it as plainly as you can mm -hmm. and repeat it <laughs> as often as you can, because people don't necessarily hear you the first time you speak. Uh, but eventually, if you keep at it, your message will get across. Um, as far as um, building consensus is concerned, uh, that's more a case of diplomats who are working at the United Nations. So, for example, uh, recently I was involved in this tangentially. I wasn't involved directly, but I can talk about it because I was, I was involved in it. Um, Ireland had the responsibility to um, pilot through a resolution through the United Nations Security Council to extend the ability of the international community to deliver humanitarian aid to Syria. Had that permission been removed, had the resolution not been um, renewed for an extra period of time, it would have meant that on a certain day, all humanitarian deliveries to Syria would have stopped. And this would have caused an enormously damaging humanitarian crisis in Syria. And we had to, our diplomats in uh, New York had to negotiate with all the members of the Security Council, some of them wanted wanted to stop the humanitarian corridor from operating because they felt it was simply channeling. This is uh, Russia in particular claimed that it was channeling um, uh, you know, support to to opponents of the uh, regime in Damascus. Um, eventually, through the power of persuasion, um, we managed to get everyone on board and. Happily, the humanitarian corridor that could have been closed had we not been successful has remained open. In this, obviously, that was a painstaking effort to find ways of bringing everyone on board, persuading, uh, you know, talking to people. I, I, I could imagine that my colleagues in New York would have spent hundreds, maybe thousands of hours talking to people, trying to bring people around to the kind of outcome that we finally arrived at. So that's the sort of... So, so what I say about that is that um, a diplomats require require the three P's: patience, persistence, and perseverance. In other words, you have to be extremely patient. You have to, be you have to keep going back. You have to persist. You can't give up the ghost, and then you have to persevere. You have to really, 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 uh, you know, put your back into it. And if you and you have to be flexible as well. You have to be. You have to be creative and imaginative. And I think Irish diplomats are credited with being good at sort of building consensus. At we're not, you know, we don't come into a room. We can't. We don't anyway. Come into a room and bang on the table and say, okay, this is it now. This is the deal. And you all stand up or else, you know, we will, you know, we, we, uh, I would make life difficult for you. We can't do that. 
we wouldn't, wouldn't have the capacity to, to make life difficult for anybody. We don't have any hard power that we can throw around, but we have a lot of soft power. In other words, we can persuade people. And that's how it works, generally speaking. Well, I love the three Ps, you know, um, patience, persistence and perseverance. I think that they're great uh, words for anyone to take on board. And I suppose it highlights as well the power of communication and the importance of talking uh, as a means of conflict resolution and as a means of gaining more understanding of other people's positions that you need to talk. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the lesson of the Northern Ireland peace process in which I was involved to some degree. Mm. Um, you know, it, it didn't happen overnight. Um, uh, W.B. Yeats has the line in, in one of his poems, peace comes dropping slow. Now, he was talking about you know, spiritual peace, but but it's true also that peace in Northern Ireland came dropping slow because it took it took years. I mean, you think about it. Uh, the first violence, the first serious violence in Northern Ireland was in 1969. Mm. The Good Friday Agreement was 1998. Mm-hmm. That's that's almost 30 years. All that time, quite a few initiatives were tried, quite a few efforts were made, and they took a long time to try to deliver them, and they failed to deliver the kind of peace that we now have. So. It is a long game. You cannot rush defenses in any aspect of life, in my view, but certainly in, in, in diplomacy, when you're dealing with other countries and different interests, you have to try and under, understand those different interests and then have to find ways of bridging the gap between those interests. Mm-hmm. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. I mean, I think you are a wonderful communicator, Dan, and you did mention social media earlier. Which brings me to poetry. You mentioned Yeats there and, you know, Wordsworth has described the essence of poetry as emotion recollected in tranquility. And, yeah. you know, for me as a doctor, and I mean, my big interest is health, well-being. I think that words can have tremendous power to inspire, to engage positivity, a brighter version of the future. You know, Sufi poets like Rumi and Khalil Gibran. And of course, our own Yeats, you know, tread gently for you tread in my dreams. And you are such an ambassador for poetry, particularly Irish poetry. Where did that come from, Dan? Well, I, I suppose I first started taking interest in Mount Zion back in the uh, early 70s when we had a very good teacher there, Sean Crow, who I think um, mentored generations of, of uh, pupils at Mount Zion and, and uh, deserves great credit for, for, his, for his work because he was an inspiring teacher who made us realize that it wasn't that poetry and literature generally wasn't just uh, to get through the exam that it had a value that went beyond um you know exam time i've i've carried that with me but I, but, I, but i suppose the, you know the main sort of the penny drop for me really first of all in in cork uh, when i was studying and i i was doing history and literature and i wasn't sure which of those two um, topics or subjects I wanted to pursue for a master's degree. I knew I wanted to do a master's, but I wasn't quite sure which of those subjects I wanted to um, specialize in. And then I came across, started reading Yeats' poetry seriously and realized that Yeats's poetry really does provide a window on the Ireland of 100 years ago and more when the country was being transformed by process of uh, revolution and whatever you call it, but certainly political change was the order of the day in the Ireland of the period between 1914 and 1922. And we're just uh, coming to the end now of our decade of centenaries. But that was what first grabbed me, was that Yeats was a kind of a witness to this particular period in Irish history. And then I started to realise that other Irish writers of the time had a similar um, capacity to act as witnesses, i.e., study George Russell A.E., who was a, the editor of a couple of influential newspapers at, at, at the time, apart from being a poet, 
which he was. He was also a painter and he was also a, um, a, 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 a political commentator. So, and then I also started looking at the work of James Joyce and seeing how, how that also explored the Ireland of that time. So I kind of saw this link between literature and history and literature and life. And I started to explore that. And that was what my master's thesis was all about. And I've carried on with that interest uh, ever since. And the best example of, of that in action in the diplomatic um, arena was um, in 1982, I had a friend in Delhi uh, whose grandmother was a distinguished Indian diplomat, former diplomat. Uh, her name was Vijaya Lakshmi Pandit. And her, her, her fame came really from, first of all, her own achievements, which were uh, considerable, but the fact that she was the brother of Jawaharlal Nehru, uh, the Indian freedom fighter and the first prime minister of India for the first uh, 15 years of India's in independence. And I was invited to lunch at her home. Now, remember, I was 25 years of age and I sat down to lunch with this very distinguished lady in her 80s who had been all over the world, had been an ambassador to uh, the Soviet Union, to the UN and to um, the UK and Ireland. And uh, she said to me, oh, you're Irish. And I said, yes. And she said, I will arise and go now and go to Inish Free in a small cabin built there of clay and wattles made. And she recited the entirety of the Lake Isle of Inish Free and then the entirety of when you're old and gray and full of sleep. And I remember thinking, well, here is a member of the most famous family in 20th century India, and she is knows our poetry by heart. And that's a lesson for a young diplomat, is it not? That we have something in our literature that gives us a distinction that we wouldn't have if we were operating without the help of our, our, our great writers in advertising and, and making Ireland better known than it could otherwise hope to be. So I, I take the view that we have two big assets. One is our culture, which has a reach, our literature and our culture generally has a reach way beyond Ireland and reaches people all over the world and gives us a profile that we couldn't otherwise hope to enjoy as a, as a country with 5 million people. And secondly, we have our diaspora. We have the 80 million people of Irish descent, many of whom I've discovered here in the United States really feel quite a deep affinity with Ireland, even though they are descended from people who came to America a hundred or more years ago. So that was a little kind of epiphany. That was a little penny drop moment when I realized that our literature had a value that went beyond purely its value as literature, that it had a value in terms of its ability to communicate some things about Ireland to a wider world and to attract people from other backgrounds to take an interest in Ireland through our literature. I think that's a great way of looking at culture, that culture is not something that's passive, that it's something that you enjoy, but it's, it's something that becomes an active part of your everyday experience. I mean, that's what you're doing, aren't you? You're on Twitter. Um, I've often seen you reading poetry on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I look, I, I decided to start tweeting a poetry for Yeats' 150th birthday in uh, 2015. And I was going to finish doing it at the end of the year. But a lot of people came to me and said, you should keep it going because it's great. So I, now, since then, I've been tweeting different poets every day. I, I tweet poets, all Irish poets, except occasionally I tweet, an, an, I tweet an American poet, for example, on Thanksgiving or on, on, on the 4th of July, but mainly they're Irish poets. And they're poets that range from English translations of medieval monks' scribblings on manuscripts to poets in their 20s uh, today. So I try to cover the whole range of Irish poetry. And what I find is that people respond very well to poetry. I tried this with James Joyce's prose. I started tweeting bits from 
a portrait of the artist as a young man. It didn't get the same response at all because it's very difficult with prose to, to have say something in 280 characters that makes any sense or that has any kind of value to people. Whereas with poetry, you can select six lines that actually say something relevant. And I found especially during the pandemic, people seem to be turning more to poetry for sort of consolation as they were, you know, they were deprived of their their normal uh, consolations of, you know, social life and company and so forth. And uh, quite a few times when I when I went to put the hashtag poetry into my tweets, it would come up trending, mm-hmm. which meant that at that moment, people all over the world were actually using that hashtag, which means that they were responding to the predicament they were in by turning to, in some way, turning to poetry. And then Eamon Malley, a journalist from Northern Ireland that I have known for many years, said that we should start reading poetry. So for about four months last year, every day I would record myself reading a short poem, a short Irish poem. And for example, ones like Derek Mahan's poem, which is called Everything is Going to Be All Right, which just seemed like a perfect um, poem for the predicament we were in, dealing with this terrible pandemic. And nobody knew where it was going to go. Nobody knew how bad it was going to get. It got pretty bad, but it could have got worse. You know, it could be worse. Because, um, I, I mean, cause at the beginning, there were apocalyptic sort of fears. that Absolutely. The whole system might collapse and so on. And I mean, I, I remember people talking about stocking, you know, stocking food, you know, putting food in their freezers for fear that the whole... Uh, distribution system would break down. Never happened happily, and, and we can be glad about that, but it's been a pretty bad experience. But I did find that some of those poems, some of those readings that I put on my Twitter account and on my Facebook account, you know, were read, like, you know, were actually seen 20,000 times, you know? People, 20,000 people listened to my readings. And how would that ever happen normally? It happened because people were in need of something, and somehow the poems, and by the way, I chose my poems very carefully. I chose poems that were uplifting. I didn't Yes. I didn't ever read a poem that had any kind of grim or gloomy um, point to it because I felt there was enough gloom and grimness in the world as it was, and I didn't need to add to it with my little poetry. So they were all in some way uplifting. There were celebrations of nature, which people, I think, were also, you know, turning to very much for consolation in that dark time last year. You know, I think there's a great learning in that, that, you know, we all, no matter what the circumstances, we all have the power to choose how to respond. And by you choosing to connect with uplifting poetry, you know, that in itself was was a very positive choice. But I think you're absolutely right. I mean, if I reflect back over the last 18 months, I think there has been more of a search for spirituality, more of a search for meaning, for purpose, for connection. And I think poetry does bring that. It brings that otherworldliness. It brings that sense of the higher self the higher realm, as you said, in, in, in a short number of words, it becomes possible to get some higher meaning from something. Yeah, it does. What I like are poems that celebrate small things in life mm. that are actually very meaningful when some of the bigger things are taken away from you. Like, you know, the bigger things are, you know, your, you know, the comfort of your, your family and, and your close, close friends. When you were separated from them, you know, the smaller things in life, the, you know, the little, I mean, we, my wife and I spent all of last summer in the garden of the embassy residence in Washington. I mean, it was, it's a lovely garden, so no complaints there. But, you know, we took an interest in the garden that we had never taken before because in our busy lives before the pandemic, we rarely went to the garden. Or if we did, we were in company with large numbers of people and we didn't have a chance. But we were on our own in the garden and we were, we were observing things that we, you know, otherwise might not have seen. We, you know, we saw that, you know, the seasons change. We saw the flowers coming up and... Uh, you know, flowering for, you know, for a few weeks or months and then going again and new flowers emerging to replace them. So it really was um, 
an ex- experience that, and you know, the birds landing in our garden, we, we had our bird book out and we were trying to check on which birds were coming to visit our garden. So we would never have done that. We weren't the kind of people that were that interested in these things, but somehow last year made us take an interest in things that previously we hadn't really bothered too much about. I think you're absolutely right. It's about the little things. I think Mother Teresa said that, you know, not many of us can do great things, but we can do little things with great love. And when you strip it all away back to its essence, it is about simplicity. It is about values. It is about the small things in your everyday, in your relationships that can make a difference. And I think you're absolutely right. Nature, that sense of connection, the constancy of nature, the the ever-changing nature, the seasons, the birds, the bees, Absolutely. I think here in Ireland, there's been a, a rediscovery of nature as, as I say, a new vital sign for your well-being, of a vibrancy, of vitality from nature. Dan, if we were looking back to that younger version of you, I'm, I have this image of you getting on that plane to see John Tracy run and then head on to, to India, such an adventurous journey at such a young age. If we were looking back at that younger version of you now, what might you say through the lens of experience and wisdom? I think I would say... Um enjoy every single minute of the life that you've been given to live, you know. I mean, I always say that, you know, we can't remake the world. You know, the world is there. What we can do is we can make the best of it in our own slice of it. And that slice can be in Ireland, it can be in Waterford, it can be in anywhere in Ireland, or it can be anywhere in the world. I've come to realize that despite all the hurly-burly and the the mishmash of animosities and uh, hatreds that, that you see so much in the public square these days, I've come to believe that most people live lives of quiet satisfaction. Someone wrote about people living lives of quiet desperation. And of course, there are people who who are in that position, and we can't ignore that fact. But I do think that most people actually enjoy the lives that they are able to live. And I think the aim should be to, to get as much satisfaction out of that life whatever it might be, rather than to be yearning for impossible things that may never be realized. I'm not advising complacency or sitting back and, 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 and letting the world go by you. No, I think you should be vigorous. You should have what Yeats called a pilgrim soul, always searching for meaning, always looking for new things you can do, new experiences. But I do think that that frame of satisfaction is an important one to try and build around yourself, rather than a frame of frustration which some people find themselves trapped within. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think, you know, it comes back to gratitude. It comes back to wanting what you have, appreciating what's already in your life and enabling yourself, while you said, to stay vigilant with the pilgrim soul mentality for a meaning, but also to to enjoy what you have today, to live that life of quiet satisfaction. If we were looking forward, Dan, I mean, obviously you've been an ambassador for a long time, over the next few years, three to five years, what are your hopes for the future? Well, I mean, um, being in America um, is a, an eye-opening experience for for many reasons. But but one of those reasons is that I'll give you an example. I sat beside Alan Greenspan, the former um, chairman of the Fed, a very famous um, American public figure, at dinner there a couple of years ago at a friend's house, and we were talking about the Irish economy and so forth. Now. He's quite frail. Physically, he's quite frail. You know, he's probably, I don't know how old he is. He's probably in his, his mid to late 80s, I would suspect. And and fairly frail, you know, physically quite frail. But I happened to ask him, I said, well, what, what are you up to these days? Thinking he would say, well, I'm, you know, I'm taking a well-deserved rest after my, you know, <laughs> seven years of activity in the public space. And I'm, he said, oh, he said, I'm writing an economic history of America. And he sent me a copy of it afterwards, a signed copy, you know. 
And I was thinking, hey, there's a wake-up call now. There's a guy that could, if he wanted to, rest on his laurels and, you know, be invited to give speeches and, and attend conferences and just take it easy and, you know, and, you know, put the feet up uh, metaphorically and even physically or, you know, spend his time in a, in a sort of, a, you know, in a retirement kind of, you know, a community in Florida or, or somewhere in the Caribbean or whatever. But no, he's got the... He's got the, the get up and go to want to do an economic history of America, which is no small task, right? Now, I mean, the book, when it came out, he had another uh, writer working with him, but still he had to sit there. And I know myself, I'm actually working on my book on James Joyce's Ulysses, which is coming out oh, next January. Fantastic. And I know how, how I know how demanding it is when you're trying to to, to f- tie down what you want to say and you have to, to really work hard to try and make sure you're saying things exactly as you mean to say them and not being not being obscure or, or being unclear in mm. what you write. So that was, and, the, and I have so many other friends as well, Americans here, we're in their 70s, we're in their mid 70s and are still active. I mean, Tom Donahue, who's the, uh, just stepped down there recently as the chairman and CEO of the American Chamber, which is the biggest business organization in the world. Tom has started, he's 82. He started two or three or more new things that he's got into, um, which he's uh, going to devote himself to for you know, for the coming years. So in other words, rather than regarding, you know, 30 years of service to the American chamber at 82 as a full stop and let's put the feet up. No, he's doing other things because he said to me, he said, look, he said, uh, I have too many friends who went down to Florida uh, to take it easy after a busy life and were sick within two years and dead within five. Which is a really interesting reflection. So his advice was, you know, keep going. He said, don't, you know, like, don't, don't, don't overdo it. Don't kill yourself with work, but, you know, don't, don't take the idea that, you know, your career has come to an end and you then go into a kind of a slumber. He advises against that. And I'm inclined to agree with him. Well, I would too. I would too. I mean, it's really interesting. Uh, there's been the men's health study has been going, going on in the Boston area through Harvard since the 1920s, since the last recession uh, or the great kind of recession in the 1920s. And men that live to be very old, in other words, men that live to be close to 100 None of them really retired before the age of 80. And when I read that, I remember thinking, that's really interesting. And, you know, it turns out that having a strong sense of purpose in terms of what you do and who you are is a great driver of your health and well-being. And so much so, I often say to people, now, don't retire, rewire, do something differently, do things that you've always wanted to do, but don't stop. Don't ever stop. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, I mean, and that's what I intend to do. I mean, I obviously I'm, I'm coming close to the end of my diplomatic career as such, but I do intend to find new avenues for my um, abilities and my energies, because I I fear that um, without those avenues, I might uh, decline fairly quickly into a state I wouldn't Mm -hmm. want to find myself in. So that brings me to my next obvious question. How do you stay healthy, Dan? Because for me, health is the golden egg. It's the foundation stone to everything. Yeah. Well, well, you know, again, um, being in America is a kind of a, it's a kind of a wake up um, call because Americans are so, first of all, their health outcomes are not great. As you know, I mean, life expectancy is on the decline there at the moment not just because of COVID, but because of other factors. Um, uh, so it's a very unequal society in the sense that, you know, uh, if you have healthcare, health insurance, you get the best healthcare in the world. But if you don't, it's a different story. So, um, but the people that we know, I mean, they 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 indulge in preventive medicine is is really quite a 
a big thing here. You know, I mean, things that we don't do in Ireland to the same extent. You know, people go to their dermatologist once a year to have their, you know, their skin checked for for signs of cancer, for example. You know, now I I I've started doing that, but I mean, but it was something that I really only started doing when I got to America because you know, it just the culture here is is it, it points you in that direction that you know you should be, you, you know, you should be you know be careful of your health. But I mean, but my own instinctive sense is that. The, you know, the best way to stay healthy is to live healthily, to take exercise. Before the pandemic, I was going to a gym. I stopped doing that during the pandemic, but I walk a lot and I try to, um, I, I try to be as, as fit as I can. I, I don't drink uh, very much. I mean, I drink occasionally and, but in, in, you know, in very small quantities, uh, and always socially, never, never on my own. I'd never have a drink on my own, for example, or my wife and I would never have a drink if we were having dinner together, um, only when we have people around uh, and only if they are, are, are also people who want to have a drink. So and I, I also think it's kind of like, I, I'm not into fanatical sort of, uh, you know, um, you know, regimes. I'm not, I, I don't know that any regime that you can, end- that you can embrace is going to give you that guaranteed outcome, right? So I think you're better off choosing a, a, a regime that you can manage and that can manage you. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I don't, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not into kind of, you know, if you do the following things, you're going to live to a hundred. That I don't think is, is, no. is reasonable. I think all of it, I mean, I see a lot of it is, is, you know, is, is good luck and bad luck. Some people have, have good fortune in their whatever genes or whatever, or, or the environment they're in, or they get lucky. Something is spotted early and is, and, and it's dealt with and so on. So, so I, I, I don't believe in any kind of, um, silver bullet approaches but i think you know behaving sensibly strikes me as a as the way to go you're dead right i mean uh, certainly genes and luck play a role but certainly we can increase our odds uh, with some health supporting health enhancing habits and there's a lovely old african proverb that says you know if you're running away from something it means something is chasing you so if you if you're if you're on a regime to use your words of denial or or whatever that that's usually going to end in, in in failure so it's much better to have positive habits that are sustainable compared of who you are. And it's about consistency. As you said, exercise, exercising consistently, eating well consistently, having a checkup once a year. And it's a big thing, particularly with men here in Ireland is, um, I've called it ostrich syndrome, you know, that syndrome of denial and just sticking your head in the sand and ignoring symptoms for far too long. So I think that's great that you've embraced the idea of that health is an active asset, um, not to be fanatical about, but to to value and to, and to, and to take good care of yourself along the way to maximize your chances of lengthening your health span and enabling you to do all those great things you're planning to do. Dan, can I ask you, you know, in terms of, you're obviously a very, very resilient person and you know, that's very self-evident to me. Could you give our listeners three take-homes for a resilient mind? I mean, three take-homes are, first of all, you got to have an open mind. Okay, an open mind is going to be a resilient mind. Second, you've got to have application. You know, you've got to be willing to apply yourself. You've got to, you, you know, your mind doesn't doesn't function, I think, you know, automatically. You've got to apply it. And uh, thirdly, you've got to feed your mind with um, ideas and uh, and uh, from different quarters. It doesn't have to be books, but it can be sort of, I, I think you have to be, you have to kind of feed your mind. I, I think having an open mind and being surrounded by, you know, by nonsense is probably not going to do you much good. But I think I think a combination of openness, application, feeding your mind with ideas that will keep your mind fertile and resilient. I think there there are three great uh, ideas, having an open mind, applying your mind and feeding your mind. I mean, 
someone once said, you know, reading is to the mind as exercise is to the body. And we do certainly become our associations. Finally, Dan, after what for me has been such a, a wonderful conversation for you, what's the meaning of life? Well, I would say that the meaning of life is a search for the meaning of life. <laughs> <laughs> Because I think it's um, in because I'm writing this book on Ulysses. I've been I've been reading it a lot uh, over the last uh, year and a half. And uh, in episode two, uh, the principal at school says to Stephen, "I don't think you'll stay along here. You know, you're not a teacher." And Stephen says, "He said more of a learner, perhaps." And that's what I think I want to be until the day I die is a learner. I hope that I'll be still learning things about life till the last days of my life however long or short that may be and because i think that 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 learning and i mean and by learning i don't just mean like you know sitting in a library and with a stack of books or, or or papers or what i mean i mean being open to different ideas mm-hmm. and exploring those ideas and trying to get to the bottom of them i mean for me it's history it's literature that drive me but other people have other interests i mean i know people are who are fascinated by their gardens mm-hmm. and by you know the people get a buzz from the sciences and so on i doubt there's any overwhelming answer to the overwhelming question of what is the meaning of life but i think again by successive approximations maybe we can get somewhere close to some kind of answer dan thank you so much uh, what i want to say finally is you know keep learning keep leading keep inspiring keep being a great ambassador, not just for Ireland, but for positivity, for possibility, for being that pilgrim soul. And of course, for poetry in the world. Dan Mulhall, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. For further resources to support you to live with more vitality, please visit my website, drmarkrow.com. Music